Hello and welcome back to the Rheumatology.Physio podcast. Um, I'm Jack Marks, the Rheumatology Physio, and I want to introduce you to the first of five axial spondyloarthritis series podcasts. These are sponsored by Novartis, and I want to thank them very, very much for um, giving us the opportunity to produce this series to really get into depth about a condition that I think is poorly understood across the spectrum of medicine. So this first one is titled Physiotherapy for Axial Spondyloarthritis. We're going to go on to talk about other topics such as um, axial spondyloarthritis in women. Uh, We're going to talk to NAS about um, the experiences of patients with axial spondyloarthritis and lots more in the pipeline for the other episodes as well. So really looking forward to um, recording these and creating them as a nice little package to go go together, meaning that you'll have loads of information about axial spondyloarthritis. This particular episode contains um, members of A-Stretch, which if you've not heard of them, you can find them on Twitter and um, just search A-Stretch in Google. Um, and they do lots of work for healthcare professionals um, for extra learning around um, axial spinal arthritis as well. So on the podcast, I have got Heather Harrison, Susie Marler gakewood and Hannah Chambers, who between them have an absolutely tons and tons and tons of experience working with axial spondyloarthritis and we really get into depth about what we can provide what the best options are for patients um, how we might provide uh, treatments as well we talk about virtual versus um, in-person appointments we also talk about what msk clinicians might be able to utilize their current skills to treat axial spondyloarthritis and where they might need some extra training really loads and loads of information in this and um, really useful we even get down to the utility of a dexa scan in um, in these patients um, so loads of information in here we did have a little bit of a connection issue with hannah's um uh, connection on the on the recording software so you will need to just bear with a couple of sections where the sound is a little bit um, not 10 out of 10 let's say but um, I've managed to clean it up pretty well in editing. Finally before we crack on with this um, episode and learn loads about physiotherapy for axial spondyloarthritis I want to direct you to a new event that I have just released um, so if you go to rheumatology.physio forward slash event you'll find all the details there it's going to happen in april it's going to be a hybrid event so there's going to be in-person tickets as well as virtual tickets um, and you can go there and get those now it's going to be absolutely unmissable amazing speakers really branching out for me on content creation and hopefully i'll see you all there but for now let's enjoy me talking to heather susie and hannah all about physiotherapy for axial spondyloarthritis Okay, hello everybody, welcome to um, the podcast. And we're going to talk all about physiotherapy and therapy interventions for axial spondyloarthritis. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Heather Harrison, Hannah Chambers, and Susie Marla Gakewood as well. And we're going to talk um, as much detail as we can about managing for, well, as much as we can cover that isn't related to medicines, I suppose. Um, So really delighted to have all three on from A Stretch. 
Um, I'm sure we'll talk about A-Stretch at some point during the podcast as well. Um, give that a little plug. Um, but first of all, just want to get us to introduce yourselves, if you can. If I could start with you, Heather, if that's okay. Um, what you are up to most of the time and um, your sort of interests in Axbar. So my name's Heather Harrison. I'm a physio in the York and Scarborough Hospital Trust. I work solely in rheumatology. Um, I have an interest in Axial Spar. I actually run our physio-led inflammatory back pain clinic, both at York and Scarborough. Um, I've been a member of A-Stretch since it started 20 20 years ago. Um, So, yeah, I also run our local mass group. Um, So, yeah, so I have a sort of good interest within Axial Busy as well, I imagine, doing that. (laughs) Yes, yeah. (laughs) Um, Brilliant. And if then I come to you, Susie? Hello everyone, my name is Susie, Susie Mala Gagward. I'm a rheumatology physiotherapist working in MSK outpatients at uh, Northern Lincolnshire and Gold NHS Trust, which is in the northeast coast of England. Um, I am very proud to call myself as an A-Stretch member, been working with it for 2000, 2001, and I run the local Grimsby Down NAS group. Uh, recently, I've been working on Tai Chi for Axial Spa. I've done the part one in January, and I'm looking forward to do one in January 2022. Brilliant. And then last but not least, to Hannah. Hi, I'm Hannah Chambers. Um, thank you, Jack, for inviting us in, on you know, behalf of A-Stretch as well, but um, to an advanced practitioner. And um, that's for East Kent Hospitals NHS Trust. I, I work part time. I also work for in, in MSK primary care for a private practice as well as in NHS patients. So I do the, the combination of the two. But within my role in rheumatology, I, um, I, I see all sorts in rheumatology. It's not specifically AXPA. I see plenty of AXPA, um, but I do I do a bit of bit of everything really. Um, with regards to A stretch, I've been um, part of the committee probably only the past it's been the past year, so more more recently. A little bit newer compared to Heather and Susie then, who have who have certainly uh, led the way there. Lovely. Okay, so um, as I mentioned, I want to um, really get into all of the topics that we can get into with regards to axial spinal arthritis. Um, and I'm going to keep saying physiotherapy, but really we mean therapies. We might have some osteopaths and chiropractors and whoever else listening. Um, so we want to give them a bit of advice too. So I want to start off with you, Susie, if that's okay. Um, We'll start really simple with what is it that axial spinal arthritis patients need from physiotherapy in general? Um, As a physiotherapist, I would always give consideration to the patient's needs. So it's going to be physio uh, not led. It's going to be a patient led physio program. And the goals to be based on their expectations. So if you think about patients' expectations, you're looking at three things. They normally would like to get relief of their symptoms. So if you look at that section, the symptoms could be pain, fatigue, stiffness, which are the three main components with all our patient group. I'm sure you all agree on that. So the other things which you can also interfere is interference with work, struggling with activities of uh, daily living, with the mobility, general flexibility reduction, and also um, you're thinking about different lifestyles they lead, uh, and that needs a big consideration. Um, and the next thing I would say to you is the, is the severity of the disease. What do they face? Do they face 
um, the disease progressions in different levels because nobody comes equal. Everybody is different from everybody. So are they facing the disease CVRT, particularly in a moderate level, a mild level, or severe level, which stage they are in? And according to that, they need change. And uh, the third one is the treatment. What treatment they are undergoing now? Is that what they need? Or you can have a change. Is it according to the disease progress? Or is it according to the symptoms? So there you go. You got a bottle of three things together mixed. Um, with the pain relief, um, physios will have to provide the needs to the patients, giving them the required modalities. Some modalities are liked by the patients. They like the heat packs. So we start with that. And some patients are very, very highly intellectual. They go into the newly manufacturers, pressure guns I've heard of. So you can go from the newly invented ones to the routine traditional hot packs. You name it, you can pick it up. But you've got to really go along with patients' likes. Is that what they want? They feel better with it. Is that coping? They are coping with that pain levels. How is the pain levels? Are they going to monitor with the VAS scope? If they have five out of 10, if they have a heat pack, does it go down at least by two? These are the things you've got to start thinking and reassuring them each stage and asking them, is that what you really need? Is that what it's like by your body? Is it the pain control? So likewise, you would do with the fatigue level as well, looking at um, answering whether the energy levels, how are the energy levels? Uh, they are particularly coping with pacing. Are they, do they know at all about the four Ps in their life? Do they know about how to plan? Do they know how to prioritize? Do they know how to pace activities, balance them? And do they know how to position when they're resting to avoid postural problems? Then the stiffness, obviously, everybody's getting stiff, especially early morning stiffness. And again, things like they can't tie the shoelaces first thing in the morning. So you can give them some pain-graded exercises, giving them a relaxed, gravity-free treatment position, which they can actually self-employ at those stages and then probably progress with the exercises or regress regarding the pain levels. So I would give them that ownership. So this is what it is. Try them. Come back and tell me. Trial and error wins the race because it might work with one person, may not be with other. So explaining them and reassuring that you're not going to be the same, that wins the race. So patients will start liking you and then slowly they start opening them worries and then say, look, I am a sedentary lifestyle holder. I don't like to exercise. So there you go. You open a bottle of worms and you can say, okay, what are you doing actually? Why is that you don't like the exercise? then actually explaining to them, uh, it's okay to discuss. You know, some people don't like to discuss. So who will come and tell that I am actually a couch potato after I finish work? So it is something for them to talk about that. So get, getting the tolerance to the drugs, getting the tolerance to the exercises, slowly progressing them and regressing them. Then you become a patient counselor, you become a listener, good listener, you become a big communicator, you become a mentor, and then the physio wins the case. The third one is providing the treatment, uh, the right protein. And treatment can be a big different thing. I'm sure Hannah and Heather will talk a lot about the treatment as well. Um, you can give them two boxes in their hands. This is what I would do. One box is a small box, very small, but it's got lots of things. I call that as a flare-up box. So it can have resting positions, pain modalities, the general pain-graded relaxed exercises which they can do, which can condition the muscles, which can relax the muscles, 
and then get ready to exercise during the flare-up periods. And that shouldn't really hurt them. So they will get more reassured to do more exercises. And you give the key to them, that is the ownership key. Every person should be given the ownership key from my side. So the large box will tell about the general exercises. You name so many exercises are there in this world. So you can, but you can actually progress those exercises to a specific as well as the general exercises to improve the cardiovascular fitness and aerobic capacities. So you can tell them this is where it is. You can progress. You can come back. But you need to open the key. We can reassure you. We can encourage you. The reassurance and the informed education will actually tell the person to go and use the key often. And once the flare-ups are addressed, you can actually get them to go towards the fitness level. And if the key gets rusted, it's either the disease progression or is it you not guiding the patient or the patient problem. You get all the limitations. There you go. That is the way you handle Lovely. I really like that analogy, the key with boxes and keys. I'm stealing that. Uh, I've written that down, mm-hmm. just stealing that forever. Um, I just wanted to ask you while we just while we're on this subject and um, we were saying about how you've been part of a stretch since 2001. I was just wondering if you've seen any change. We've seen a lot of medical management change over that period of time. I wonder if you've seen your role in physiotherapy change, particularly with patients, obviously, um improving quite quickly and getting back to much more function yes are you, are you asking me jack mm-hmm. yes um i think the drugs have taken a massive change since i started we never had biologics anti-tnf is a new tonic and it's a tick so uh when i saw when i came into this country and i saw ankylosing spondylitis patients some of them are wheelchair bound some of them had a very stupid posture now, I hardly see that because the biologics have taken over and reducing the inflammation. The next one is when the delayed diagnosis, it was 12 and a half years, if you agree with me, Heather, there. So when we started, it was 12 years plus, and now it's come to 8.5. And we're working to get to one year, aren't we? But we are trying our best. So these two things have taken on board. Exercises-wise, I think we did a lot of different IT technologies have come. You name it, the apps have come. Uh, the DVDs, CDs, now it's gone to apps. So I'm still not aware of all the IT. I'm quite thin in that ground. But children teach me how to do things. So now we can do a WhatsApp video call and do the call, do the exercises. If the Zoom is not working, I switch on to WhatsApp call. How many of us did any exercises like that virtually? Over the COVID, we did the Zoom. And we're still doing the Zoom for 18 months. So there you say, so there is three different types of drugs, the different ways of exercising. You don't have to really liquidly see, virtually you can do it. And you can do face-to-face, you can do groups. You can do remotely control patients, which is a big high standard. That really nicely rolls us into what I was going to ask Heather, actually, which is um, the basic question being, how might we best deliver physio? Um, and... I was wondering about, obviously, with COVID, the last 18 months, two years, we've seen its explosion of um, online and virtual appointments, as Susie's just mentioned. Have we seen um, patients really taking to virtual appointments, even though they can come back to face-to-face a little bit? Is it a lot of people wanting one-to-one or group type exercises you you mentioned about NAS groups I know they've been amazingly successful over time um what's 
you know, without just without us saying it's, it's slipping to uh, is the patient's preference. What what do you feel is the best way of of approaching the management styles here, Heather? I guess obviously COVID has, has really changed everything in how we we approach physio in general, uh, axial spar or rheumatoid or whatever we do. Certainly, uh, I do, the inflammatory back pain clinic that I, I run um, literally would measure patients usually every year. We'd do their BASME, we'd do all their BAS indices, um, and then I'd see them t- potentially in physio. I think the patients in the clinic that I'm going to class as more as a rheumatology clinic like to be seen face to face. They like that measurements to be done. And I know they're out there working on virtual measurements. So I know there are a couple of um, different universities and looking at how we can do that at home I think that would be brilliant for patients to be able to do their measurements in between at home um it's difficult isn't it I personally I quite like the idea of seeing somebody once doing their measurements having a look at them looking at their balance looking at every aspect and from then really whatever the patient likes virtual telephone um we do a sort of zoom call with patients a little bit difficult to even see movement through zoom but you get the contact with patients being able to see them face to face um so i think there's a bit of everything i think certainly we won't go back to that everything face to face that we used to do and i don't think we need to because certainly a telephone call if you know somebody's managing exercises you just want to have a catch-up see how they're doing with other aspects that you can do over the phone I think that's ideal um, and stops patients having to travel. Uh, certainly where I live, we're quite rural. Patients might take an hour to get to, to an appointment, which really, well, if they've got AS, you don't want them sat in a car for ages waiting to come. So I think there's loads of possibilities. I think also group sessions are brilliant, um, certainly for giving education for patients. You can, if you've got patients in a room, there's so much knowledge about how to manage a condition not just from the therapists that are doing it, but from the people who live with it every day. And I think getting people in a group, whether it's over Zoom or whether it's face-to-face, has that sort of pros of, of doing it. So I think there's there's just different ways of looking at it. I would never have thought of doing a group over a Zoom before this. Like I say, technology is not my, my forte. Yet we've been doing our NAS group by Zoom since the beginning of April last year. And the patients love it. And they can manage to exercise in their home, own home, They've got us. We we know what's going on. They've still got that community, which is really important, especially when we were sort of properly locked down to begin with. They've got that connection. Um, So I think there's lots of different things that we can use, um, not just with NHS, but obviously with with charity groups like NAS to keep people connected and keep them not just exercising, but all that sort of mental health um, as well, which is really important when you've got a chronic condition. You need that support of peers. And I think sometimes we, I did a, a little survey a couple of weeks ago with our group, asking them why, what sort of what they got out of their NAS group. And exercise was bottom of the list, if you like. They liked the fact they were with other people um, and that peer support, which is brilliant. Uh, yeah, I go to do the exercises, but it's facilitating all the other stuff that, that they get out of it. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you might get, get as good a results if you just went to Pizza Hut for a chat and a... <laughs> yeah quite possibly they do a book club. I don't do the book club but they do a book club they've got the whatsapp but it's that commonality isn't it of, of people just coming together um yeah and I try and get the exercise in at the, at the back as well if we can other other pizza joints are available I should say shouldn't I? Um, <laughs> yeah. I was I, I was wondering um Heather about do you feel it's difficult to say. I think I, I suspect at the moment, and I I suspect data will come out in the into the future. But 
do you feel like um, there is a difference in being able to see the person face to face from a clinical point of view for both exercise interventions, but also the assessments that you do? You, do you lose? I suppose a, a bit. Do you lose a bit of that je ne sais quoi of just having seen people? over a number of, I mean I remember when I worked in rheumatology uh, full time and and you just get used to that movement pattern that people have when they have loads of stiffness that Susie said do you feel like some of that is lost virtually and you need to keep that face to face I I definitely I definitely do I think um it's it's being able to assess people because people don't always know if they're feeling a bit stiffer you obviously ask them how do you feel yeah I haven't had a flare do you feel you're losing any mobility and it's very difficult because people do sort of compensatory movements they don't realize they're getting stiffer necessarily and it's only when you see them and you can compare past measurements that you can actually have an objective view and I think we went months obviously without seeing patients face to face and it's only when I started seeing face to face again I realized what I was missing and I think particularly balance and I, I, I when you haven't seen somebody balance and you give them balance exercises you don't know where to pitch it and if you haven't seen somebody move um, and you give them just random a splattering of, of range of movement exercises you're not being so specific um, and I think if you're going to give people say three exercises you want them to be the really best three exercises that you can get don't you because people don't want hundreds of things to do they want to go off and do all their other activities but if you want to really home in and say these are the three I would do every day if you can you want to get the right ones I think um, and that's where seeing them face to face is important and like I say I don't think you need to see them face to face all the time some patients you might do but others once you've got that idea it might be perhaps a yearly or, or bi-yearly whatever whatever works yeah perfect um so I want to come on to you H- Hannah a little bit and talk about um specific input versus more general input we've obviously spoken to heather a little bit there about sort of groups and um bits and pieces like that and i think when i read a lot of the research that's done for let's say just generalized physiotherapy for spondyloarthritis there doesn't seem to be from my reading of it that one approach seems to be much better than another so it seems to be like um face-to-face individual treatment seems to be about as good as um group treatment hydrotherapy seems to be about as good as walking programs about as good as um uh, tai chi which i know susie's doing some training in and things and there doesn't seem to be something that's like this is the thing that's much better um but then as as heather's just alluded to sometimes you can be better for individuals so i just want if you wondered if you would comment a little bit around that for us about sort of general versus specific input yeah um, I think it it does depend on on individual. And we do always have to tailor tailor um, everything to individual. I think going back to the the virtual versus the the face to face. I think there is a bit of evidence that has recently come out um, where you know patients do quite quite like you know having having the virtual aspect. There's a bit of evidence out there that we do do well with the virtual, but we cannot assess as well. So I think that's important to to consider when. We, we're deciding whether we actually bring our patients in face to face or not. Is that you know we can can miss things if we're only seeing people virtually, um, as Heather has said. You know patients don't always realise you know what what's changing. Um, we actually have to assess the patient to be able to 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 see that. So with regards to when when we first see newly diagnosed patients, um, it, I think it's important that we we do do face to face so that we can get 
get to grips with with really what's going on with the patient so that we can tailor their to to their specific needs and also with with patients we see uh, have long-standing disease um when we're trying to work out whether they are experiencing inflammatory back versus mechanical back pain the the only way really we can um, determine which they're they're experiencing is is to fully assess them and, and i don't think you can do that successfully through virtual assessments um you know I, i've seen patients i've seen during lockdown and i have convinced convinced that they've got mechanical back pain and then i'll bring them into the department and then i, I realize that, that it's in, inflammatory in nature um, and that's you know despite me having clinical and work with as for for many many years um you know we, we are seeing people face to face when when we need to and i think there's specialist first um you know general physio specific physios uh, who what patients have access to some patients don't even have access to physiotherapy let alone rheumatology physiotherapy so i think it's about first of all trying to get all rheumatology patients and axpar patients um access to physio and, and then trying to to upskill the, the the physios that we have working in MSK. I mean, they have great background skills. It's just about adding that inflammatory element um, to the skill set. I wanted to come to you, Susie, on just what Heather was saying about um, there aren't enough rheumatology physiotherapists to cover all of the departments and all the rheumatology patients. Um, so we are going to need some of our MSK colleagues to help. Where would you suggest that they start? So if you you're a, working in msk you've never seen an axial spondyloarthritis patient again and suddenly you're going to be asked to be seeing them where would you start with um what information would you be looking for or what advice would you give those physios Hmm. it really depends on two things the present knowledge and the passion to learn from the physio MSK physios, I mean, I am working in MSK and rheumatology at the minute. It took me a long time to learn MSK stuff because everything is complex in rheumatology. MSK is a little bit easy. That's what my outlook is. So from an MSK physio trying to become a rheumatology, two things. If they are observed a rheumatology physio, then they know what is the dip in the knowledge they need to really fill in. If they haven't, they have to go along with evidence-based practice, which are scattered everywhere from nice guidelines to start off. Yeah. And actually getting a rheumatology network group and asking, that's what I did. I can tell you my example. When I joined in, there was no rheumatology physio. I was the first rheumatology physio and the previous physio left. So I had to get a network and that's how I found a stretch because I felt I wasn't having enough knowledge about rheumatology to go through, especially with ankylosing spondylitis. So that'll be, I will look at, I will look at the evidence-based guidelines. I would learn to um, fill in the gap of my background knowledge, then go into networking with people to see what they can do, whether I can shadow people and get the knowledge from them. Um, and the third one is also, um, there is a, I have to blow our trumpet. We have a stretch. Um, it's a group of physios. We are always swimming in the evidence based. Um, uh, see, Heather will agree on that. So I would say find a network group which has already been dealing with rheumatology on uh, ankylosing spondylitis. So if, if at possible, even lupus, 
So I would go into networking with those people to learn what I'm going to do. Say, for example, I'm an only an MSK and I'm going to deal only with backs and dividing, differentiating between backs from the chronic inflammatory versus mechanical ones. I would look at a questionnaire to uh, differentiate. That's quite easy to do. But I wouldn't know that unless I speak to somebody somebody from a stretch or something same thing with the lupus i wouldn't know what to do what instructions i would give unless i closely observed or spoken to a consultant about it so it is the knowledge where it's getting from expert where there is no randomized control trial to tell you you go for expert opinion that's my way of looking at it so you go for that and again it's again if you if you learn to look at thirst i would go even further to find out by trial and error, looking at the basic exercises, what I would do and learning from my own experience and reflecting on it. Lovely. I thought you were going for a play on words with swimming in the evidence base because uh, I'm right in saying A-stretch do, yeah, do a hydrotherapy course, didn't they? Um, I thought that was where you were going with that one. Um, so Hannah, we were just, I was just asking Susie about um, the crossover skills from MSK into um, rheumatology and axial spondyloarthritis, um, uh, particularly, and obviously you work across across both fields. Um, so, what I was um, wanting to sort of get into was, if you're an MSK therapist and you're going to start seeing axial spondyloarthritis patients, what skills can you utilize immediately that you already have and build upon, and what are the new, what newer skills do you think you you would have to go out and seek? I think a lot of it can still come back right back to the the questioning it's um getting ingrained into you know from student level to band five level and all, all the way up you know into into senior level is is trying to differentiate between the inflammatory and mechanical symptoms and i don't think we we do that enough um so i think it's, it's still going you know we still need to to, to try and upskill people with the, the inflammatory screening and that helps people to differentiate whether someone's experiencing inflammatory or mechanical pain. And I think um, that that can be tricky for, for people when they're not seeing inflammatory patients all of the time. It doesn't mean that they don't have the skills to assess. I think they have the, the physical skills. I think it's, it's the, the clinical history that needs, needs a bit, bit more work. But once they get the questioning in there and they're actually doing their, their assessment, the, the assessment really isn't a, a huge amount different when you, you come to assess a back. You know, MSK physios are, are very able to, to do that. That's what they do, you know, all day, every day. Um, you know, I think there's a, a few tweaks that you can add in about making sure they're, you know, palpating the SI joints, um, trying to focus a bit more on the thoracolumbar junction, these areas where we know that people get these inflammatory areas. Um, to, again, just trying to help you differentiate whether you, someone's got active, active disease. And then, you know, when it comes to, to looking at their their treatment um you know physios are very good at um giving um patients exercises that are tailored to their knees needs so you know mobility exercises aren't really any different to anyone who has a a, a back a back pain physios are very able to do that um i think again it's just adding in those those few tweaks where it'll be about trying to target extension a bit more the anti-gravity muscles trying to focus a bit more on cardiovascular fitness trying to focus on on chest expansion so it's just adding in those those few extra bits um you know alongside um the the education as well and making sure patients have a good understanding of their their condition knowing that they do have an increase in cardiovascular risk that's why you're 
um, adding in cardiovascular exercise, not just for the cardiovascular, not just about the thoracic expansion. Um, you know, if patients have an understanding of why they're doing something, they they will, will they'll do it for you. Um, you know, I, I know we we're talking about patients um, getting good self management skills and doing what the, pa- the what the, the patient wants. But at the same time, we also have to um, educate them to know what to say what they their actual you know long term needs are. And you can't get away from the fact that they need to to maintain their mobility. They need to increase their extent strength. They need to um, improve their cardiovascular fitness. Um, you know, again, looking at chest expansion, etc. Um, so those things, um, you know, we we have we have to be putting that across to to patients. Um, you know, to to make sure that um, they can manage their condition long term. Brilliant. Do you have any further comments on that, Susie? Yeah. While you were asking a question about different ways, there's it's like a sea of answers. I think from the MSK level, people don't understand the fatigue levels with inflammatory conditions. They don't deal with it because I work with occupational therapists in the wards. I learned that from them, how to really assess fatigue, how to really uh, put that as a limitation. The tolerance and compliance of the patient is very important uh, with patients with axial spondyloarthritis, whereas with a mechanical back pain, you don't have to really, I mean, yes, you would consider, but not in that extent. Um, and those five questions which you normally ask, we do an in-service training for all the MSK physios. Uh, and that actually has nationwide we have done, even with A-stretch, we have actually um, felt that five questions, how it can rule a mechanical from the uh, chemical inflammatory back pains. Um, and how they can escalate that to a rheumatologist. That's very important because we are looking at delayed diagnosis, aren't we? We're trying to get uh, from 8.5 to nearly one year. So we got to keep that target. So if you're getting MSK physios to address those patients, and if they're not going to be able to identify that, then they're going to be in a big loss. So a lot of training should be done in that so that we can um, capture those patients, uh, get them the diagnosis done, and then treat them. So treating is another thing. Yes, you have to look at the compliance tolerance. What else you can think? You need to know a little bit element of the blood test when the inflammatory markers are you know higher up. When you can escalate on top of that, uh, even things like um, vitamin D levels and uh, uh, you know all this hemoglobin. You need to have an eye on those and how to interpret the MRI. How to read an X-ray is very important. Yes, people are very good in MRI, but then do they know how to detect a spinal edema? sacroiliac edema, edema. I learned going for a course with, I think we went, I don't know whether, Heather, you didn't come on. We went, three of the stretch people, I think we went in London to learn. But I didn't know how to really direct that. So those are the things like, you know, it's a holistic approach. And I don't think MSK physios will be able to do that unless we give them a package. And do we have a package? So we can't really give, give them no training and expect them to become rheumatology. That's my belief. But anybody can learn anything. Uh, if they want to yeah we've got a good base haven't we? we've got a good base yeah um heather i want to come oh go on yeah heather's, heather's I, put her hand up for a comment sorry. Yeah. i was just going to add in obviously uh susie mentioned there's a lot of resource on the a stretch website um and there's, there, there is loads of information the nas website has lots of although it's related to patients um there's loads of information that i think would be really good if, if you're sort of an msk physio coming into to axial spire and you don't know a lot so much information on the NAS website that on all aspects, whether it's fatigue, 
driving uveitis inflammatory bowels there's all that connection so yeah that's a really good resource for not only patients but also therapists to look at lovely just coming back to um the identification of axpar obviously we've got a big driver to try and reduce the delay to to diagnosis but i do think msk physios are best placed to identify and it's one of the big points i want to get across it's not just about inflammatory back pain is it you know, we get people coming in with their Achilles tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, tennis elbow, and they're the patients that people need to be asking about the back, asking um, and the, the inflammatory screening questions. And I, I don't want people to be put off from referring if they're not sure. If if people are only referring patients that get a diagnosis, they're not referring enough people. You know, they'll be missing people. So say, I know our rheumatology departments are very busy. But we, we do need to be referring these, these patients, but particularly it comes back to the, the screening and asking the right questions. Yeah, for sure. Um, it sounds like uh, either I've stolen that quote from you, Hannah, or you've stolen it from me, because that's exactly what I say on my courses when I when I, I deliver that information as well. Um, and, the, and the other thing, just while we're talking about that, is if you're not referring as many women through with axial spondyloarthritis as you are as men then you're missing them because we should be getting the same numbers shouldn't we um heather i wanted to come to you to talk about um sort of pragmatics really um i was speaking to a department not so long ago and they were saying they've got a certain number of sessions with each patient because they've got this waiting list covid related staffing related all these bits and bobs but they're limited with the number of sessions so if people are limited, what's the biggest bang for a buck or, or what would you, you know, let's say they were limited to two or three sessions or something. What would you say, what is the must covers and then what's sort of the nice to cover after that? I guess the must covers is, as Susie said originally, what what is the patient wanting to get out of physio? What do they come with? What's their agenda? Because if you go off on your own agenda and you don't get to the patients, you're not achieving a lot. So it has to be patient led. Um, I guess if it's physio and patient led together where you're sort of nurturing them, it's just looking at their general fitness, their general activity. Um, but also, as Susie said, fatigue is such a problem. You can give people lots of exercises, but if they're very fatigued, they're probably not going to do them. So I guess it's the education about what the condition is. And I think education is so important. What they want to get out of it, what actually axial spar is, is to them what it limits them doing what they want to achieve um so that i think education is is so important so yeah very much patient-led i think if you are struggling with with sessions then it is looking at whether or not um group sessions are going to be useful so that perhaps initial one-to-one to actually see where the patient's at are they at a point where they want to go into a, a group session and then trying to get patients into a group um and that's often more cost effective because you can get i don't know 20 people on on a zoom call um as opposed to one and and exercise on a zoom call so i think there's, there's ways around it yeah. okay brilliant um just my sort of final little bit really um and i'll come to you hannah first for this but then i would like susie and heather as well if you can comment it's the um a question i get on my courses all of the time is um about what changes we would make if any to um uh interventions once patients have got fusion so um everybody seems to be very concerned about once their patient has some spinal fusion about um what they should be doing 
Um, so I wanted to really get some information about that, really. Um, should we make great big changes? Um, should, is there anything specific we should we should do or should avoid? If, if we know patients got fusion, then they've got, um, you know, increased risk of fracture if you were to do man your manual therapy. So that, that's one to, to be aware of, um, making sure that you're, you're not doing your, your heavy manual therapy on them. Um, we also need to be cautious anyway because of the increased osteoporotic risk. Um, so we, we should, be, should be more aware, not just with women, but with, with men as well. Um, with the, the manual therapy that's not to say that we we can't can't do manual therapy of course of course we can but you've got to to judge the level of disease activity progression and the the age of of the patient the major ones hannah's just mentioned about the osteoporosis i would look at the balance because the balance is going to be disturbed so i would look at risk assessment uh, slips and falls i would look at the footwear uh, what sort of adaptations they need to do environmental checks, workplace assessment if that person is working or they're doing any different hobbies. Um, I would look at cardiovascular input, whether they could still do the breathing exercises, avoid further fusion of the shoulder and hips. So further prevention can be prevented by giving them uh, adapted resting positions because I've had three patients like that. And um, one GP, I have to tell you a small story. Uh, a GP told a patient to go and use a water bed. And she used it. And within two years, she com got completely fused. That was the first patient I felt I saw with ankylosing spondylitis. That was 28, five years ago. So um, use of good beds, mattresses, um, especially adapted to that. I've given wedge cushions to keep the hips in abducted position. Things like that. Problem-solving approaches, uh, which the person need to self-manage because not necessarily we need to leave them because they are fused, but we've got to prevent still. Prevention is still there and maintenance should be done. So that is, I can't tell in words, it depends on the individual and what actually lifestyle they lead. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anything else, Heather, on there that you think um, we would add in or change? But I think we've, we've added quite a lot, to be fair. The only thing I was <laughs> think of if somebody's pretty fused is driving um mm, and yes. being mindful of mirrors obviously you can get adaptive mirrors mm. and also the, the head support so if somebody was hit from mm. behind you need to make sure that they have a head support that if they are mm. sort of in a fixed flexion position so yeah i guess that's the only mm. thing that, that might be extra that you could add in Brilliant. and yeah. then the swallowing obviously swallowing it comes up straight away isn't it if the person is um uh, quite dichyphotic and yes uh, we have had problems with um, bringing the salt people in uh, to give some. Um, yes, it has gone to that extent. Yeah, um, and Heather, just uh, just to finish on the osteoporosis front, um, you'll you'll see this in your clinics. Um, I'm right in saying that when someone has fusion, it messes with the DEXA scanning, doesn't it? Do you, yeah. Have you got any any advice for us um, around what to do about that? Yeah, it's difficult because you, you do, you get obviously more bone growth and less bone growth in the, in the vertebrate, which makes it hard. Obviously, um, you can do a hip, hip dexa, uh, but it is more the spine that's going to be affected by the osteoporosis. So I, I guess it's taking the, the patient in as a whole. Um, obviously, that, the osteoporosis is worse early on in treating the disease. They lose sort of more bone earlier on. 
And certainly if the disease is controlled, so if it's somebody that goes straight onto biologics, they're less likely to get osteoporotic. But it's bearing in mind, obviously, the age of the patient as well. Certainly gender makes a big a big difference. But you can't trust a DEXA scan if somebody's got um, effusions of their spine because it just doesn't give you a, a quick reading. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much to the three of you to, um, for um, spending the best part of an hour with me chatting over these things. Um, I just wanted to give you a last opportunity. Anything that you wanted, um, I can guess at least one thing that we might be promoting a little bit of, but any, any signposting you wanted to give um, the listeners to further information or further projects that you guys are involved with. I'll start with you, Heather. So, yeah, have a look on the A-Stretch website. In December, we did 12 days of blogs. So there's a new blog uh, each for each 12 days. And once a month, there's a new blog that goes out, which looks at different aspects of um, AS, whether it's research, whether it's um, exercise. But that's a really good, <coughs> excuse me, and it's updated constantly. So it's a really good resource. Brilliant. Um, for you, Susie? I would second. I'm a Facebook admin for A-Stretch. So, yes, please, please look at and like it and comment it. And also look at NAS because I haven't really promoted NAS with all my works. But, uh, yeah, NAS has got absolutely, I tell all my patients to go and look at it first. So NAS and A-Stretch are the most to be promoted. And keep moving. Yeah, keep moving. Brilliant. And finally to you, Hannah. And I agree, really, you know, the, the NAS website is a great resource, not just for, for patients, but also clinicians. There's the, the back to action within the NAS website, which is a great resource for exercises. So if people are new to rheumatology or new to treating AS, it's a, a great place for people to go to get ideas about what um, exercises to advise patients. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, once again, thank you very much for. Um... Um, oh, go on. Sorry, Susie. I'm sorry. I love dancing. My husband is a choreographer. So Bollywood dancing, you promoted with it. So keep innovating ideas with uh, people with axial spa because they get bored. So anything new. Uh, so I promote dancing. So it is good. And music and relaxation helps. That's why I chose Tai Chi and dancing. So anything innovation, keep it coming. Brilliant. And we'll see you on the uh, tech innovation, Susie, won't we soon? You'll be designing an app or something. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much to the three of you. And um, I hope that everybody's enjoyed that chat. I found it very interesting and lots to learn. And I think we can all improve, especially anybody who is working in, in musculoskeletal practice and is being asked to see um, axial spondyloarthritis patients or even is interested moving into rheumatology and every lots of departments need more rheumatology physios so um certainly a good good way to go and everybody needs to go check out a stretch and nas and i'll put the links in to the show notes of the uh of the podcast as well um so thank you to the three of you and um hope you have a good rest of the evening thank you thank you, thank you.